Now we're going to move on to the actual lesson for tonight. So if you guys can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. I mean 5. So last week, we talked about Jesus telling us about anger. We're continuing our series through the Sermon on the Mount, which is the longest sermon that we have from Jesus in the entire Bible. Jesus approaches so many things. And the Sermon on the Mount is kind of like the Pentateuch for Christians. We're very similar how, you know, Moses got the law from the Mount Sinai. Jesus is given the Christian law from on a mountain. And, uh... It's pretty cool. So like the Sermon on the Mount contains a lot of varied things that are extremely foundational and important for the Christian life, which is good for us because if we're Christians, it means that Jesus is our king. And if you're not Christians, it means that Jesus is still your king, but you're going to be forced to bow instead of doing it willingly. <laughs> but if we are in the kingdom of Jesus, it's really important that we know how to live. And so the Sermon on the Mount is like Jesus giving the laws of his kingdom, talking about who gets in, who stays in, and all that good stuff. And there's an important kicker when we get to verse 48. That's going to be awesome, but we're not there yet. So first things first, um, we're just going to read the entire section. I'm going to kind of dive straight into this one because there's a lot for us to talk about tonight. But if you want to follow along with me in verse 27... It says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So in this section, Jesus is dealing with marriage. And marriage is one of those things where marriage and surrounding issues are going to be some of the most important things for Christians to understand. Especially in our modern culture, like purity, marriage, what marriage is, and what proper marriage is supposed to look like is something that is under fire. Everywhere you go, people are going to be normalizing things that are sinful, and they're going to be encouraging you to do the same. And for Jesus, he wants to make sure that the people in his kingdom are approaching marriage properly. Marriage is one of the first things that God instituted, and it's incredibly important for our lives as Christians that we are living out God's design for intimacy. Because if you're not, that's a problem. But the first thing that we're going to talk about is verse 27 and 28. Jesus says, You have heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the first thing that I want to show you guys is that a lot of times we have this view of sin where we think of things as a list of do nots, where it's like, this is sinful, that is sinful, this is sinful. But as long as I'm not doing the sinful things, I'm good. And I want to help you have a bit of a paradigm shift about how you think about what is and is not sinful. And we taught about sin a while back and we talked about three things that comprise sinfulness. Like sin is what you, is when you do the... Any guesses? Commission, commission. Wrong thing. Yeah, sin is when you do the wrong thing. Sin is when you don't do 
the right thing. And sin is when you do the wrong thing for the, or sorry, the right thing for the wrong wrong reasons. So sin is when you do the wrong thing. Sin is when you don't do the right thing or when you do the right thing for the wrong reasons. And that's a really long-winded way to give you the simple definition of sin, which is this. Sin is missing the mark. When you talk about sin, sin can be thought of like archery where it's not that God gives you a whole list of do's and do nots. It's that God has a standard. God has a standard of perfection that all of us are supposed to be living out. And what is, what is sinful is when you don't meet that standard. And so, for example, imagine archery. In an archery match, there's a lot of ways to miss the target. You can imagine God putting a bullseye right there in the firing ground, And you can miss that bullseye by turning around and shooting one of the judges. You can miss that bullseye by not pulling the bow back enough, letting it go, and the arrow doesn't even make it to the bullseye. Or you can miss the bullseye by being two inches off. But in every single case, you've missed the bullseye. And you can think of that in terms of you shot at the wrong thing, you did the wrong thing, you didn't make it to the target, you didn't do the right thing, or you were so close but your motivations were wrong. And God's thing is, God expects perfection from us. So Jesus is looking at lust, and this is the same thing he does with, uh, with murder. This is the same thing he's going to do, continuing through this section. He says, you've heard it said you shouldn't commit adultery. You've heard it said that you're not supposed to sleep with someone you're not married to. And you think that because you haven't gone all the way, that you're chilling. But what you don't realize is that there's a standard. And so this same thing is kind of reflected in Romans 3.23. This is the verse that a lot of us will know. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul doesn't say for all have sinned and done the right, done the wrong thing, not done the right thing or done the right thing for the wrong reason, but fall short of the glory of God. You can see that when Paul thinks about sin, he thinks about missing the mark. And when you think about sin, that's what it is. So I want you guys to reframe how you think about sin because Jesus isn't saying that lust is the issue. One of the common ways that people will look at this passage and think about it, in fact, this is what I was taught in youth group, is that Jesus is saying the issue isn't adultery, the issue is your heart. The issue isn't what you do with your hands, the issue is what you're doing in your heart that leads to what you do in your hands. And so, for example, one of the ways that that comes out is my youth pastor would talk to us and he would say, you know, when you're talking about physical boundaries in dating, lust is the issue. What the actual issue is, is lust. So however far you can go without lusting in your heart, that's okay. And the thing is this. (laughs) No. (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah. So that's it. So the reason I'm telling you this, it was not our dad. So the reason I'm telling you this is like, that might seem like, well, yeah, duh. But that is a surprisingly common interpretation in evangelical churches. That is something that you're going to hear frequently. That, you know, however much you can touch someone without lusting in your heart, that's where the line is. No. Because you might be able to convince yourself that you're not lusting as you suck face, but that doesn't matter. Assuming that you can do that without lusting, there's still physical boundaries that are important. Jesus isn't saying committing adultery is fine. I just don't want the heart attitude. Jesus is saying this is God's standard and it is so firm that even lusting breaks that standard. Looking at someone with lust is already breaking that standard. He's not saying lust is the issue. He's saying that even lust is a deviation from God's standard. 
But additionally, in Jeremiah 17, 9, it says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Proverbs says that the way of a man is right in his own eyes, but God weighs the hearts. And the issue is we are really good at convincing ourselves that the heart attitude is not sinful. And so you might be able to think that you're doing all these different things and that there's no real lust in your heart. But Jesus says that what comes out of a person is what defiles him for from within out of the heart of the man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, <gasps> and all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So Jesus says the actions that you take reveal what's in your heart even when you don't realize it's there. So if you're crossing physical boundaries all the time and you think that you're not lusting, congratulations, you're lusting. You just don't realize it. But that's the important thing, is that I want to start you guys off by understanding okay, by understanding that sin is missing the mark. I think you are correct. We kind of fit it in. Like, gone in the line and stayed, like, straight. Straight. <laughs> Whatever, man. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> so sin is missing the mark. I want you guys to reframe the way that you think about what is and is not right. You need to understand what God expects and what God's intention is, and then deviation from that is what sin is. It's not a matter of doing the wrong thing, not doing the right thing, or doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. It's a matter of missing the mark. And a long way to say that is doing the wrong thing, not doing the right thing, or doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. But it's a lot easier for you to navigate sometimes morally, quote, gray areas if you understand that. And a lot of sexual stuff specifically is based on that. Understanding Genesis 2. Okay, second thing. That's the first thing that we need to understand. Second thing that we need to understand is that lust is destructive. I'm chilling. So <laughs> lust is destructive. And this is something that we've talked about a lot. We talked about Song of Solomon. We talked about Proverbs 7. A while back, we were talking about Genesis 2. So one of the things we've talked about a lot is, well, okay, what is God's intention for intimacy? And in Genesis 2, 24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. We've talked about this a bunch, where the intention for marriage is that one man and one woman enter a lifelong covenant with each other, and who's the most important person in the marriage covenant? God. That's right. So a man and a woman enter into a covenant with God that they will be joined together for their entire life. That's God's intention, and that they will become one flesh, and one of the things that entails is the physical relationship. We talked about in our sexual purity night, out of Song of Solomon chapter 5, uh, the bride refers to her husband and she says, his mouth is most sweet and he is altogether... What in the world? Words. His mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved and my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. And the thing that we talked about is in our modern day, sex is often transactionalized where it's like, you know, you do it to scratch an itch, but there doesn't have to be a relationship there. And the thing that God intends is that you have the closest friend of your life and that the physical intimacy is an aspect of that that strengthens it and it's supposed to be limited to that covenant. So God's intention for sexuality is so good and sin is when we move outside of that. So with lust, lust is looking at a person and...
All right. <laughs> yeah, that, that went right down. Holy cow. So, okay. So lust is looking at someone and then having sinful desire for them and then actually like, I guess we could refer to it as taking the second look. So Jesus is saying that when you look at someone and you start like imagining stuff with them, you are already crossing the line. I'm trying to think of a not weird way to describe lust. I don't know. But Jesus is saying that even lust is a problem. And let's think about this. Lust, the reason that lust is such a major problem is first of all, it's a break from God's design. But the reason that that's such a major issue is that when you lust after someone, you turn them from a person into an object. Because God's commands are, you need to love God. That's the first command. And the second command is, you need to love people. And the issue is that when you look at a person that you are supposed to be loving, and you turn them into an object for you to use for your own sinful desires, for the sake of getting aroused, or for the sake of doing anything else, you are reducing that to something less than a person. You are reducing them to something less than a person. How are you supposed to love someone when you have trained yourself? to view them as an object. And the issue is, this is an extraordinarily damaging thing because you train yourself to look at the opposite gender and to view them as subhuman and that damage doesn't just inhibit your relationships with people you're not married to because then you get married to a person and this person that is supposed to be this extraordinarily intimate relationship, all of a sudden you're, you've trained yourself to view them as an object. And so every time you fail in this area, every time you lust, every time you pursue your sinful desires, you are damaging your ability to function in marriage in the future and you are damaging your ability to love people of the opposite gender. So that's why it's such a big deal. And the thing that I want to help you guys with, I'm not saying this to shame people that struggle with lust. I'm not saying this because like, I want to be hard on you. In the week that we talked about sexual purity, I talked about how I want to give you God's intention for sexuality so that you can look at God's intention and say, I want that more than I want what sin offers me. That's one aspect of motivation, wanting what God has for you more. The other aspect of that motivation is recognizing how damaging this sin is. And there are so many people who don't take lust seriously because they don't view it for what it is. They don't view it as something that's destroying them. They don't view it as something that is dehumanizing other people. We don't talk about it that way. And so people aren't taking it as seriously as they otherwise might. And so my goal for you is not to shame people that struggle with this. My goal for you is to be motivated by what you want and by what you don't want. Because you want God's design for you and you don't want the consequences of this sin. Instead, I want to help motivate you to fight against this with everything you have. Because Jesus says in verse 29, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the only one of the sins that Jesus brings up in this section where he talks about ripping yourself apart to avoid hellfire. And it's not to say that other sins aren't damning. What it is to say is that Jesus is very clearly um, accentuating the intensity of this sin. <laughs> and if you see it as what it is, if you see it as this destructive thing that is harming your ability to function and that is harming your relationships with other people, that is going to help you do whatever you need to do to get it taken care of. And the thing is this. 
James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Because the thing is this, the issue isn't your hand. It's not your hand that's causing you to lust. The issue is not your eye. It's not your eye that's causing you to lust. And Jesus is saying, if that were causing you to lust, it would be worth losing your hand or losing your eye to not fall prey to this. But realistically, that's not how we're going to deal with it. The way that you will deal with it is by talking to people. One of the reasons that we come to church is because church is a community where all of us are sinners and all of us are sinning and struggling. And one of the main ways that you grow is by talking to other Christians. And not every Christian. You're not going to come into the middle of church and just broadcast your issues to everyone. But there are people that you need to talk to. Talk to your parents. Jesus is saying it is worth giving up anything to avoid this sin. If your phone is causing an issue, get rid of your phone. It's worth not having it. If your computer causes you an issue, get rid of your computer. It's worth not having it. Do whatever it is you need to do to draw barriers in your life to protect you from this. Talk to your parents. Come clean with them. Get their help. Get their prayer. Talk to people who can be helpful and keep you accountable in your life. And the reason I say that is because sometimes it's easier or perhaps it seems like you'd rather cut off your hand than come clean to your parents about what you're struggling with. And I'm saying it is worth talking to your parents. It is worth talking to people who can hold you accountable and who can pray for you. It is radically helpful and it is so important. And you guys, as Christians functioning in the church, one of the things that you are going to do as you function in the church is help other people that are struggling with this. Not judgmentally, but recognizing how damaging this sin is and out of love and grace for them, doing everything you can to help them. And you yourself might find yourself in the position where you need to come to church and you need to get someone else's help with this. And when that happens, recognize that they might not handle it well, but the thing you need to do is guard yourself because this is damaging, this is major, and it is important. So the last thing that we're going to talk about is that you can deviate from God's pattern from marriage by pursuing sexual experience or activity outside of the context of marriage. There's another way that you can completely defunct the uh, God's intention for marriage. And the third point is that marriage is for life. I did a better job on that one. Yeah. Yeah. Marriage is for life. It's because God says they have been made one flesh. And Jesus says elsewhere, what God has separated, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And in verse 31, he says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So, in the same way, this is a deviation from God's standards. God's standard of marriage is that marriage is something that lasts for your entire life. We talked about in Genesis chapter 2 that you're making a covenant with God that you will be joined to this person even if you are worse off for it. Except in the case of immorality. That is the only situation where God gives you the ability to break that off. And the issue is, Jesus says... And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And in this case, Jesus is specifically talking about a divorced woman. It goes both ways, man. Like this works both directions. And 1 Corinthians 7 addresses that where Paul actually does say it goes both directions. But, you know, this isn't like, you know, men do whatever you want, but women, not you. Like, no. 
This equally applies to both genders. <laughs> um, but people a lot of times will look at 1 Corinthians 7.15. And in the case of 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about like, well, okay, what if two non-Christians are married and while they're married, one of them becomes a Christian and the other one's not a Christian? And what if when that happens, the non-Christian spouse refuses to stay married to you? What do you do? Is, is the Christian still bound in that situation? Because we just heard Jesus say that if you marry a divorced person, you're committing adultery. Which, by the way, the important thing for that, even if you get legally divorced, if it's for a reason other than sexual immorality, before God, that covenant still stands. And God seriously says, yeah, you might think you're divorced, but uh, I'm still here. Something more important than your government is in play here. So that's important. Marriage is for life. We spent a lot of time on that in our dating series because that's an important consideration, man. High stakes. <laughs> but in 1 Corinthians seven fifteen, what happens if you have two non-Christians? One of them becomes a Christian and the non-Christian leaves. Well, Paul says, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So Paul says, if the non-Christian leaves, Christian can't control their behavior. Now, here's why I'm talking to you about this. Yes. Five minute warning? Perfect. So here's why I'm telling you about this. There are people who will say, oh, this is another exception. Jesus says you can only get divorced when someone commits adultery. And then Paul says that there's another situation where you can get divorced. Maybe there's other situations that the Bible doesn't talk about. Here's what I'm going to address. Paul is not saying that it was acceptable to get divorced in that circumstance. The non-Christian that left was sinning by leaving. But the Christian is not bound by the non-Christian sin in that circumstance. So that's the important thing to note. This is not a second circumstance where it's okay to get divorced. This is not an acceptable circumstance to get divorced, but the Christian didn't sin in that circumstance. That's the distinction. But even Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11, but to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. In other words, he's quoting this passage that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. So straight up, you're not allowed to get divorced except for immorality. And if you do, you are still married. So good stuff. All that to say, God has a good intention for marriage. God's intention for marriage and God's intention for sexuality and intimacy is that it's in the context of one man, one woman married, one flesh before God, and that it's in the context of a deep relational intimacy and that the physical aspect is part of that and that any deviation from that is sin. He's not saying that lust is the issue, but if you, but if you do other stuff, you're chilling. He's saying that God's standard is important and that a deviation from God's standard is sin. We aren't called to not fall into one of our favorite do-nots. We're called to meet God's standard and to pursue it. And the reality is, we're fallen. We're sinners. Even as Christians, we're not perfect. And we need to have grace. I always make reference to Paul saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, <laughs> revilers, swindlers, adulterers, homosexuals, and the immoral will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And such were some of you, but you were justified, you have been sanctified, and you will be glorified by the blood of Christ Jesus. That's a paraphrase. I didn't actually check it. But the issue is this. Sexuality is a big deal. It's going to be something that we deal with a lot, partially because of the culture that we're growing up in. And it is important to view it properly. You need to at least know that you're not hitting the mark if you're not hitting the mark. And so with all that, 
Just remember, it's worth pursuing God's standard. We aren't going to be perfect, but we need to be running after it. It's important that we have grace in this issue. Lust is a massive deal. And that doesn't mean that we respond to it by shaming the people who struggle with it. That means that you need to love the people that are struggling with it and help them grow by praying for them, holding them accountable, and being gracious to them. And that when you are struggling with it, you need to get help. Whatever the cost is. Because no matter what it is you need to do, it is worth it to keep this sin out of your life. It's a big deal. But let's be kind to each other, man. Let's be gracious. Also, marriage is till death. So I don't want any of you junior hires divorcing your wives tonight, man. Super applicable right now, but, uh, you know. <laughs> but yeah, but the reason I'm talking to you about it is because you need to know this beforehand, you know. Anyways, but let's bow our heads, pray it out. Do small groups. Lord, thank you for teaching us on an important issue that's going to massively come up in our culture. Sexuality and the sins that surround it are often the trademark of sinful cultures. And Lord, we are in a sinful culture that is going to normalize sexually deviant behaviors and sexually sinful norms. I pray that you would help us to be on guard against that in our own lives and also that we would be gracious and gentle and helpful to the people that struggle with it in theirs. Lust is a major and destructive sin. Lord, help us to be gracious and gentle and loving to the people who struggle with it and so desperate for them to grow out of it that we tell them it's sinful and that we gently and lovingly pray for them. Help us to do whatever it takes to avoid this sin in our own lives. And Lord, be gracious to us as it is a difficult struggle. We pray these things in the name of our King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.